appreciate your patience with me as I make it up here. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Always want to check just to make sure Renovation Church, those listening online, are holding up. Uh, Someone asked me this morning if I had spring fever. What do you think? It's snowing right now, right? Do we have spring fever? You don't have spring fever? Not yet. I mean, you know, July's coming. July's coming. Good to see everyone here today. To get rid of a nuisance, one can set a trap. We bought our first house in 2007 in the Witt area, and uh, it was like overgrown the backyard, bushes, trees. It was a mess. And uh, no deck. It was just like overgrown everything. And we just started to get to work, ripping things out uh, by hand because we basically had no money left over from just getting into the house. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You're not hiring anybody to do anything. Uh, you're out there with a spoon if you have to to get rid of bushes. Uh, so we're pulling stuff away, and all of a sudden we look around and we see these big holes in the ground actually all over the backyard. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Woodchucks all over the place. And I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to deal with this? What are we going to do? And what does every good son do when they have a problem in their new house? They call dad. Dad, what do you do? He says, I get them all the time. No problem. Set a trap. Throw some apples in there. Wait till the morning. So that's what I did. He happened to have a trap, so we put some apples in there. And the next morning, Willie the woodchuck is there looking at me. And now I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to touch this thing? Like, even the cage is scary at this point. So I've got all my gloves on and everything. And uh, we did what anybody would do in the DeWitt area. If they know the area at all, have any sense of geography, once you catch a woodchuck, where do you bring this woodchuck? Woodchuck, if you're going to be humane. Some of us are thinking, I have a better solution. Well, I was trying to be nice. Where would you bring a woodchuck in the DeWitt area? Woodchuck Hill Road. If you know that area, there's an, there's a, I thought, where do we bring this? Woodchuck Hill Road. I just wanted to bring the woodchuck where it belongs. To Woodchuck Hill Road. I'll never forget when we spent 20 minutes figuring out who was going to open the cage, because I was thinking about just leaving the cage there, you know, which would have been inhumane, I understand. Sorry, animal lovers. To get rid of a nuisance, you've got to set a trap. There's rising conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus in the book of Matthew where we are. And it's obvious that as far as the Pharisees are concerned, Jesus is a nuisance. they got to get rid of Jesus. Right? Jesus is teaching. He's revealing himself. He's done miraculous things. But at the end of the day, the Pharisees just don't see it. They don't welcome Christ. They don't welcome Jesus. And they want to get rid of him. So what are they going to do? They're going to set a trap for him today. So as we approach the passage today in Matthew 12, you want to grab your Bibles? Matthew 12, 9-14, the Pharisees are going to set a trap for Jesus, try to get him, so they can get rid of him and be done with this nuisance. 
And as we see this uh, play out, we ask the question, will Jesus fall for it? Will Jesus take the bait? And how will he respond? What will we continue to learn of his nature and also of his will? What he requires and how that impacts our lives. Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Follow along with me. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out. And it was restored. Healthy just like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of God and all God's people said, amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you in Christ's name and we pray that the word read and preached will be applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak to us, change us, use us, all for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. On the Sabbath, remember, that's what the day in which we are uh, seeing uh, these events take place in this gospel right now. On the Sabbath, Jesus has gone from the grain fields to the synagogue. He was moving through the fields with his disciples. They were picking the grain. They had some conflict over this. And he moves from the grain fields and he goes into the synagogue. And that's what we would expect to take place on the Sabbath. The people of God would gather in the synagogue to hear the teaching of the rabbis, to worship God. And uh, so that's what's going on. Jesus and his disciples have entered the synagogue to hear the teaching and to worship. Matthew tells us that as they're in the synagogue, that a man with a withered hand was also there. I think it's important for us to just think a little bit about the condition that he was in. The text says that he was a man with a withered hand. Withered gives us insight into what he was dealing with. It was a word used in agricultural settings. Right? To, to be withered is to be dried up. The hand was literally dried up. In this withered, dried up state, uh, it was immobile. It was uh, non-functional. He could not use it. And again, if you think about the implications of that in this man's life, not just the simple things that needed to be be done on a day-to-day basis where, you know, having one of your hands withered would surely be debilitating, but think even about an agricultural society where work and providing for yourself and your family would require the use of one's hand. So this condition... Having a withered hand, a dried up one, was, was a, a difficult one nonetheless. It was a significant ailment that was affecting every part of his life. There was absolutely nothing that he could do about it. He was stuck in it. He had no power to fix it. 
And no one else was able to do anything about it for him either. He was stuck. The Pharisees see this man with the withered hand, and they see Jesus and the disciples, and they decide, what an opportune time to have a discussion about the Scriptures. What an amazing moment for us to learn together, to have an understanding of what was required and not uh, allowed on the Sabbath. The Pharisees see this man in his condition, and they see Jesus in all that they know about him and the kind of ministry that he's engaging in, and they see an opportunity. They see this to be a moment in which they can leverage to set a trap. Set a trap. You could say they're playing poker with these people. Like that's what the Pharisees do. They play poker. It's all a a pawn. Everyone's a pawn in their game to get the kinds of things that they want. So they ask Jesus to be what would seem to be a fair, simple question in an opportune time. It's the Sabbath. We're here to learn. We're here to teach, of course. So they ask him, Is it lawful, O Jesus, me adding the emphasis there, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They understood that Jesus in his ministry was constantly doing miraculous acts of mercy to people in their condition, in their need, doing what no one was else was able to do, and how that captivated the people, how it drew them, and how attention now was on him, that they understood what, who Jesus, uh, uh, they understood what Jesus was doing, and they wondered, could this be a moment where we could set a trap, where we could set up a uh, dichotomy between the law of God and the love of God? You follow me? Between mercy and what they understood to be mandated. They understood, right? Let's just follow the simple logic, Jesus. You can't work on the Sabbath, right? Check. Healing is a work, right? Check. Logically, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Right, Jesus? And so we see... Jesus respond. What does he say? He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He's talking about, uh, again, what could be a situation in the life of someone in, in Israel, in this particular society, where one of their sheep, again, their, their way of living, would fall into a pit. You see, the Pharisees had provisions in their Sabbath regulations that if one sheep had fallen into a pit or was in danger, one could assist and help that sheep get out. Interesting. Makes sense. The sheep is there in a place of desperate need. And of course, in that moment, to care for the sheep, to also care for their families, to, to, to protect that which would provide for them, they would, of course, extend this act of assistance in 
for their sheep to bring them back to safety. So Jesus responds to the questions with his own question. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it up? Of course, all of them would. All of them would. And then he goes on to say, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Again, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you would assist one of your sheep out of the pit, surely, based on the value of a human life, you would come to the aid and assistance of someone in such a desperate condition. That's what Jesus is saying. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater to answer the question about what is lawful on the Sabbath to say based on the value of a human life that you would do this. You would assist. You would help. And you think about, now I understand it's Pet Appreciation Week at Tractor Supply. I get all that, right? But to compare the value of a sheep the value of a human life is really no comparison at all. It's actually a contrast. If you look back to the opening pages of the Bible, and you look back to the creation account, which again, I think you see Jesus doing regularly here, especially in reference to the Sabbath, is rooting his understanding of the Sabbath back to creation. As creator, as lawgiver as redeemer Jesus is going all the way back and he's saying listen the way that you're to act on the Sabbath is in keeping with what we see in creation and what we see in creation is the the making of men and women in the image of God the value of a human life of a man and a woman is based on them being made in the image of God that's what makes men and women people uniquely honorable in the order of creation. We see that in Genesis 1. He makes everything, and he said it was good. But even more specifically, when he makes men and women, he says that they've been made in his very image, in his likeness. In Psalm 8, ask this question, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man? made them a little lower than the angels. There's something unique about the value of a human life. It's this idea that fuels our convictions regarding the sanctity of human life. It's about why we seek to defend the unborn child within the womb. At conception, there exists a being of such value because God miraculously creates in his own image a man or a woman. What an amazing thing to think about. That's what makes murder also such a grotesque sin, is because you have destroyed what God has made in his very image. May we not demean in our day for sure the glory and the honor of what God has given us being made in his image as people. He's saying, because of that, because of the, infa- of the, of the value of, of, of people relative to the value of anything else in the order of creation, 
if you're going to care for the sheep, we are surely going to care for the people on the Sabbath. You follow? The Lord of the Sabbath is very clear. He says, based on those things, so it is lawful to do this on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The law is not an obstacle in the way of love. Let that just sit in a moment. Right? Let that sit for a moment. The law is not an obstacle in the way of love. Or to say it differently, keeping the Sabbath is not an obstacle in our way of acting in mercy. If you don't get anything else today, get that. Keeping the Sabbath. Very important. We talked about that last week. It's important that we faithfully submit to the Lord of the Sabbath. It's important that we faithfully keep the Sabbath, as we talked about last week. But understand this, that keeping the Sabbath is not in any way, shape, or form an obstacle in the way of mercy. The law is never an obstacle in the way of love. On the Sabbath, we're commanded to rest. And we are free to extend mercy. What a freedom we have as the people of God. As those made and remade in His image, we're free to image the very nature of the merciful and loving God. That's the privilege we have on the Sabbath. That's the privilege we have in all of life. But surely, as those made in His image, made in the image of the One who is altogether merciful and loving, and faithful, we are called to be the same. We are empowered by the Spirit of God to be the same. To represent Him. To image Him in this world. And that's a call to resting. And that is a call to extending mercy to others who are in need. And mercy is such a contrast to the harshness of the Pharisees. The legalism of the Pharisees, isn't it? It's such a contrast. What, what freedom Jesus is providing for us as His people is such a contrast to the, to the bondage that the Pharisees are keeping the people of Israel in with all their rules, regulations, in the midst of all of that harshness. Do you see such a contrast? Such a freedom to act in a way that is merciful. That's what they were doing, right? They were coming up with all these regulations and they were adding burden to people's lives. And once again, we see Jesus lifting off these burdens from all these regulations. They were harsh. They were harsh. They were heavy-handed with the people. That was the way in which they approached other people. And I wonder if that's how we approach one another. If that's how we approach the relationships around us. If we don't come to them with a sense of harshness. Man, i gotta, I got to be honest, I wrestled a lot personally with this. Some people would say to me, Mike, I can't believe how gracious you were in that situation. All glory be to God whenever that happens. But I'm always surprised at how harsh I can be in relationship to the people often that I love and am clo so close to. Tell me you can identify with me today. 
that there's a struggle in my heart to raise expectations up on everybody else and to be heavy-handed and to be harsh and to burden people. I struggle with that. It's a sin of my own soul. Really, what it is at its root is selfishness. That's what the Pharisees are. They're selfish. They approach others out of a sense of selfishness, seeing what they can get out of other people for their own pleasure and the meeting of their own expectations. And what they do is, as they do that, they rob people of joy and they add burden to people's lives. That's the way the Pharisees treat one another. And I wonder if we struggle with the same thing. On the Sabbath day, maybe even so. On Sunday, even as we gather, do we approach this out of a sense of selfishness? What am I going to get out of this? Primarily the motive. But not only that, I wonder if we hide behind faux virtues or fake, uh, uh, or actually uh, responsibilities that exempt us from treating other people with grace and mercy. Do we hide behind other responsibilities that keep us, that even excuse us from acting mercifully toward someone else or worshiping and honoring and celebrating the triune God when we gather for worship? Do we hide behind good things? Do we make up excuses that seem to prevent us from doing what is merciful and loving and good, a reflection of the God we worship? Do we look at our work and our home responsibilities? Even shall we say, do we leverage family time as an excuse to not orient our lives to the worshiping of God and to the extending of mercy to the people of God and those around us in the world? I need to spend time with my family. Well, that's honorable. Amen. And, and some of us fathers and mothers need to do that very thing. In all the chaos and the responsibilities and the list, we continue to ignore the most, uh, 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 the greatest gifts that God has given to us, the people He's put in our lives and under our care. Some of us need to spend time with our family. But some of us are so wrapped up in those kinds of things that we're actually missing out on the great rhythm and the orientation that God has called us to. We're actually using it as an excuse to hide behind so that we don't do the very thing we are free to do as the people of God. Structure and orient our lives to the needs of others. At root, it's selfish. It's a faux excuse. It's a faux virtue, I should say, that we hide behind. And yet, it is mercy It is mercy that represents and images the way of Christ. When we act mercifully toward one another, we represent the way of Christ. But even so, we have to go back a little bit because the representing of such mercy to one another is based on the foundation that we've actually received it. We can't represent something that we have not received. We can't respond to something that we do not have. And so we go back that it is the very mercy of God that motivated within His heart to send Jesus Christ into the world 
on a mission of mercy to save a people lost and dead in sin and to restore them back to fellowship with Him. Your steadfast love endures forever. That's just mercy. God is merciful. In response to human need, that's exactly what God does. He sees our need, He knows our need, and He acts in accordance with His freely given mercy to meet our need. Tell me that's not the amazing nature of our triune God and our Heavenly Father. He's merciful. And what if the essence of life was simpler than we make it? In all the complexities that we face in the circus of our Monday through Sunday, what if we're complicating something that is actually very simple? What if true life was all about receiving mercy, responding to mercy, and then representing that mercy to one another every day, but especially on the Christian Sabbath? We know the Lord's Day, Sunday. What if that's what it's all about? What a game changer that would be. What if such an approach is the pathway to the very soul rest that we long for, that Jesus has promised, and the very rest that we need? That's what life is about. You just boil it down. It's about receiving the mercy of Christ. So if you're here today and you've never received Christ's mercy, receive it today. Receive it. And what we're doing here as we gather is we are responding to something that we have received. We are worshiping and praising God and singing and praying to Him, the One who has given us this mercy. And then we represent that mercy to one another. What if our whole posture to each other and the world on the Sabbath has been way off? What if the complicating of our lives and so many other things and commitments has led us to this very exhaustion? Imagine what it would be like if we leveraged our lives and structured the rhythm of our lives to be one of worship and mercy. Worship and mercy. Honoring God and being merciful in relationship to one another. Imagine if all of our relationships were characterized by this very mercy that we speak of. Remember what Jesus said last week. If you understood what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You remember, that's what really it was at the heart of God's covenant with His people. That they would live and know each other in a reciprocation of covenant loyalty. God gives it to us. We respond to Him with that same loyalty. A relationship with Him that is characterized by mercy. Not just more rules, regulations, and traditions that burden us. Imagine if that's the God that we worship. And that is exactly what it is. And so that's what God wants for us. The Sabbath is not in the way of that. No. If anything, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is an opportunity to all the more but see our relationships together as characterized by the, the mercy of God that we've received. And imagine the impact that would have on each other. Imagine the cumulative impact that it would have on our individual lives. 
if we approached our Sundays and our relationships with worshiping God and mercy. Imagine the kind of impact that would have. This week, Doreen and I were having a conversation, and I was having one of those moments where I was trying to do something what would seem to be very simple. And it was just, it was complicated, unnecessarily, right? Like, you're trying to screw something in the wall, feels like a stud, you get your drill, no, it's, a, oh, it's not a stud, and you got to drill a new hole, and it's just like a mess. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I the only guy that goes through this? And typically, my natural human response is I grab a sledgehammer and make a big, real big wall, because I'm so frustrated, right? But no, I was just calm, took a deep breath, Try again. We went through the whole pro- uh, process, and it finally was done. And Doreen said to me, you know, patience in a man is attractive. And I said, patience is attractive. And I chuckled because that's been an area of my life where God has been really working on my heart over the years. Because I'm not naturally patient at all. If anything, I'm, I'm impatient. Push, push, push. Faster, faster. And if anything is a bump in the road, I want to, sh- I'm just, I'm done. No. Patience. The Lord's working in me. So it was actually an, a word of encouragement for me. It was also a, a way to honor the Lord and what He's done in my life and continue to do in my life. And I said back to her, you know what else is attractive? And she said, what? I said, a patient woman. Because if truth be told, any patience that I have today, of course, it's from the Lord. But it's a result of you being patient with my impatience. It's been your patience with my impatience that has motivated and encouraged me to be patient. You see, that's what God does when we orient our lives toward one another in mercy. That's what she did. I didn't deserve her patience. I deserved actually the opposite many times over the last 22 years. But it was her mercy that was a catalyst used by God to encourage and and move me towards a greater representation of the God that we worship together. And I wonder what would take place if we did that Time and time again, in our homes, our marriages, but even in the midst of this local church. And I know that we have done this, so I mean to encourage you that what we've noticed and experienced over the last eight years together is that as we approach each other, not out of a heavy-handedness, not of a harshness, but out of a, a gracious, patient, merciful posture, that what we've seen over time is the maturation of people. That God's very purposes are, are, take, are, are come to fruition as we treat each other that way. What an opportunity we have in all of life. But surely an opportunity that we have on Sundays, on the Sabbath, to orient our lives to the worship of God, to the kingdom of God, and to the people of God. All is saturated in the mercy of God. God will do amazing things in us. 
in our homes, in our marriages, in our communities. God's at work in us and through us in those ways. So keeping the Sabbath is not an obstacle in the way of our acting in mercy. And so this is a call to keep the Sabbath, to worship the Lord on His day, on Sundays. But it's also a granting of liberty and freedom in our lives to structure our Sundays for worship and for mercy. It's really a reflection of the great commandment, isn't it? All of life. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love neighbor. And on the Sabbath, there's no law in the way of us living out the great commandment. Love God, love neighbor. Act mercifully. You're free to do that. What does that mean? Uh, To act mercifully is to give where there's need. Oftentimes, that is resources. That is financial. That means to serve where there's need. With your gifts and your time. That means to pray for need. To come to the Father and lift up the request before Him and lay it at His feet, saying, Lord, would you act in this person's life? Sometimes mercy is simply listening to someone else and what they're dealing with. So fathers, lead your families in mercy because of mercy. Lead your families to worship on the Lord's day. Lead your families to orient and structure your time together in acts of mercy. And sometimes that can feel like, well, that's, that's going to separate us and divide us out and take our attention off one another. But imagine if this is something that you did together as a family. You structured your lives together to serve. I'll never forget, Doreen and I were, were in a, a parental state of frustration. Why are they always whining and complaining about all these amazing things that they have every stinking Saturday? Five years ago, five days ago, five years ago. Why were they do? What, what are we going to do about this? Load them up. And all of a sudden, they were downtown with Rainier, serving in some of the most poor apartment complexes, and they were throwing them under the bus. Little whiny along the way. Eh, Saturday, you know. And all of a sudden, as they engaged. A world in need. Their misery went away. They're whining and complaining. Their demand for more media and screen time went away. And we had together the most fabulous family time. With a story to tell. With, with testimonies to share. Sometimes we do well to serve others out of mercy. And it becomes an antidote to the misery of all the affluence that we have in this suburban life. I guess that's my testimony, but that's not you. Serve. It's a rich blessing. Do this on the Lord's day. Yes. If you're rich, what I mean by that in the Scriptures is you've been blessed financially. Open your eyes to the needs around you. And give. I mean, we saw this last year with benevolence. An outpouring of of mercy in giving, much of which was done on the Lord's Day, to respond to need. Take someone to lunch. Encourage a young family who's trying to figure out if they can afford four more boxes of mac and cheese this week. Bless somebody. Encourage them with your resources. 
college students reject this idea that this is my time. Doreen Austin shares a testimony about how when she was a freshman in college, her mother was asking her, were you attending a local church and were you serving in that church? And she responded by saying, I have the rest of my life for that. This is my time. You guys can make fun of Doreen for that later. This is my time. And yet, isn't that reflective often of how we think about our lives? And as college students, it's almost like the culture and the the time in which you live almost seem to continue to reinforce the fact that this is your moment. Don't waste it by thinking about anyone other than yourself. And as a believing student who's in this, yes, unique time in your life, don't buy the lie that this is your time. Structure and orient your lives to the local church, to worshiping in church, to serving your brothers and sisters, and orient this day, not to catching up on procrastination with homework, but to the kingdom of God and his priorities. Singles, I think you have such a a glorious moment in your life. You don't feel that. You feel like marriage is glorious. It's better. And there is a unique glory in marriage. I understand that. But you have a glory that I don't understand and experience. You have been given a time in your life right now where you have margin uh, that I don't understand. And such an opportunity to live into the priorities of the kingdom of God. To serve and to invest. I understand it is a good thing for people to marry. But it is a glorious thing to be single for as long as God has you single. Don't think you're not living in the blessing of God in that place. God has you there for this time. And all the more, structure your life to worship and to mercy in the lives of others. Keeping the Sabbath is not an obstacle in the way of acting in mercy. It's just not. There's no... There's no real dichotomy between law and love. So let's do it. Let's keep the Sabbath. Let's give mercy together. Then we see the text goes on. Verse 13, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Jesus not only talked about mercy, but he acts mercifully. Such a display of sovereign grace. Such a display of mercy. Oftentimes when people are struggling with an ailment or going in for surgery, that's our simple prayer. Lord, have mercy in this situation. Well, the Lord had mercy in this situation. The interesting thing is the guy didn't ask for anything. Some people would say the the act of stretching out his hand was his act of faith. I think that's far-reaching. What do we see here? Jesus, out of his sovereign grace and out of his sovereign mercy, put on display the very thing that he freed us to do, to act mercifully toward other people in the midst of their needs. That's what Jesus is doing in the world. That's what he came to do. And the Sabbath regulations of the Pharisees would not stand in the way 
of what Jesus was sent here to do. And that's dispense mercy to people in need. If you're here today and you just you need mercy from God, understand this, that there is no law against you receiving such mercy from Jesus Christ today. And yet we see in this text that the greatest issue here is not a withered hand, but a withered heart. We're shocked to read the final verse. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Unthinkable to us, maybe. But I think what it does is it puts on display for us our greatest human need. That apart from the Spirit of God opening our eyes and opening our ears to see and hear and understand the nature of Jesus and what He is doing in the world, our hearts will remain hard, they will be cold, they will be dried up. And ultimately, that's what Jesus has come to remedy. Not just hands that are withered, but hearts that are withered. Because if you don't see Him for all that He is, you will continue to be hard-hearted. And at the end of the day, you will find yourselves, like the Pharisees, seeing Jesus not as a source of freedom, but as a threat. The Pharisees see Jesus as a threat because they approach everything in the world about and, and the relationships that they have, even in their service to God, it's all about them. And Jesus has come to, to remedy that main issue in the human heart, where everything is all about me, where I am trying to attain my own sense of being God, having authority, resting in myself, and myself resting in other things. Jesus is a threat to that. And that shows the greatest issue that we face. The hardness, the deadness, the dryness of our hearts. And we see in this one verse, we're clued in on where this whole story is headed. This is shocking. To be shocked by the rest of the narrative in Matthew. That you could ask, does Jesus take the bait? Is the trap set? Yes and no. No in the sense that Jesus... That's a wonderful response. But at the same time, Jesus will give himself over to the trap. No one takes my life, but I lay it down. But at the end of this gospel, we see that Jesus is, in fact, destroyed. On Good Friday, we'll be celebrating soon. That in his death, he gives himself over as the sufficient payment for every withered heart. We understand that on the third day He rose again, and the resurrection would be an eternal victory over that withered heart. That His life now, His victory, will literally resurrect us like we said in that uh, uh, prayer of confession. God raised us, made us alive together with Him. That's what Jesus has done in a sovereign act of mercy. Jesus has saved us from our greatest need. And even when we did not look for it, desire it, Jesus came into our lives and He acted in divine sovereign mercy and He woke us up 
raised us up and reconciled us back to him. He restored us in a sovereign act of mercy. Again, there's no law. And let's understand this, that all of that was in fulfillment of and in accordance with the law of God. He was just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. It was sufficient payment. It dealt with the law. It fulfilled the law. It kept the law. It wasn't a, a, a shoving of our sin in our state under the rug in avoidance and just some like sentimental mercy. Ah, forget about it. He literally went to his death on a bloody cross. He paid the penalty and it was sufficient to pay for our sin. A sovereign act of divine mercy so that we could be restored. Not just our hand, but our heart. Amen? There's no law against love. There's no mandate that's an obstacle in the way of mercy. It's all working together to bring about what God really wants. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want a relationship with my people that is characterized by covenant loyalty and mercy. Tell me you don't want that today. You want freedom from the exhaustion of trying to just obey rules and regulations to meet up your own expectations, the expectations of others, and you need to just hear the fact that Jesus met all of God's expectations for you. And it is in Him, by trusting in Him, by running to Him, by submitting to Jesus, that you are saved by Jesus, and all of those requirements are finished, done, and you simply rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Come to me, he says. What's he saying to us? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls. And that rest comes from receiving mercy. That rest comes from responding to mercy right here in worship. And that rest continues and is sustained by a representing of such mercy to one another. Keeping the Sabbath not an obstacle in the way of our acting in mercy. Faithfulness is not in the way of us enjoying the blessings of what Christ has secured for us. Amen? So trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus. And rest. Rest. Let's pray. Spirit, we praise you for your mercy. We come to you in deep need of it. We praise you that in Christ you pointed out the poison of legalism, the futility of working our way back to you. 
thank you, Jesus, that you did all that was necessary to save us from our greatest ailment, a withered, dried-up heart. I pray now that your spirit will be applying the word, that very mercy to the hearts of those who are here. Maybe for the first time, they're running into the arms of Christ for rest. I pray for those who have been Christians, but they would say their whole lives, that they would all the more be set free by the work of Christ. And that every human heart here would find rest in Jesus. Give the weary and the exhausted soul the rest it needs and craves. In Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. Enable us to be faithful in keeping. Enable us to be faithful in structuring our lives for worship and mercy. And be glorified in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.